0: This is Raising a Sane and Successful Teen, an Innovative Guide to Becoming an Awesome Parent, read by the author Marianne Maggiore. Chapter 5, When Nothing Works. At one point, shortly after I left my marriage, I had little money to set up a new household. Boats in our area were easy to come by for not too much money. I purchased an old boat from a charitable organization and found a slip on an ancient dock on the bay. There we spent a long year, which included two winters, while I gathered myself after leaving a long marriage and attempted to raise my 16-year-old daughter and my 7-year-old son. Our home on the water was a long-standing boating and artist community that was struggling for funds to refurbish itself. Our boat was old and struggling too. There were no amenities in this world that swayed between land and water. We shared public bathrooms and a laundry room with 30 other households. The docks were rotted, so electric connections were too weak to support lamps or electric heaters. We slept and ate and studied in our unheated 30-foot scout. If you can imagine walking 300 feet to the nearest bathroom in pouring rain, arriving at a locked door to wait for 10 minutes while your neighbor finishes, then you have some idea of what those months were like. As the teenager and resident girl, Gina had the forward V-berth of our boat so she would have a modicum of privacy. Max and I shared the open space of the rest of the cabin, dining room, galley, kitchen, and sleeping area all rolled into one. That was a 200-square-foot interior space, which is not much for any family. It was tough. We took over the boat the first week of February, and it rained and froze practically every day that season. We were adjusting to being a family without a dad in our home, as well as learning to live on a boat. This meant emptying the bilge when the pump would not suck, filling the water tank with water, going without the comfort of heat, walking in all kinds of weather to the shore to join the earth-bound world. In other words, it was very, very hard time of adjustment. Gina was 16 and needed a lot of attention, and she deserved it. The stresses of our situation did not alter the fact that she was a teenager, ambitious, trying to make good grades in a very competitive school, looking for a boyfriend, learning to drive. She was stressed out, and so was I. One night, all the changes and demands just ran us both into the ground. We had a fight. Gina needed space and time to herself, and all she could get was the space her body filled on her bed when she lay down. She started ranting about how stupid the boat was and how she didn't have enough room to stand up in her cramped, quote, bedroom, unquote. She felt she wasn't getting any emotional support either as she lay in her berth. "'Shouting up to me, standing, facing her from the galley above, "'I could see she was feeling just wretched. "'I had read the parenting books. "'I had taken the workshops. "'I was sure I could manage this interaction. "'I kept my cool. "'I used I statements. "'I kept a smooth and empathic tone. "'I repeated back to her what I thought she was saying "'to show her I was actively listening and digesting what she said. "'I asked her to make suggestions that would make things better. "'When that didn't work, I made my own suggestions.' She could go to the library to get away from her situation for a bit. Or her brother and I could go to the library so she could have some privacy. I could drive her to visit a friend. Each thing I said seemed to make her angrier and angrier. It all seemed to be going nowhere. Suddenly, Gina became suspicious that I was patronizing her. You're just standing there like none of this means anything to you, she screamed. And screamed some more. I really was starting to see red at that point. The quarrel had gone on for a long time, and I was weary, hurt, insulted. I had tried to be assertive and calm and solution-oriented. What I was getting was an emotional slap in the face. Suddenly I had an image of her as a gorilla out of control and coming at me, and me growing so furious and hitting her in the face. "'This means plenty to me,' I said tightly. "'Really?' she jeered. I decided to tell her the truth. "'Right now I have an image of great violence against you,' I told her but I am trying to control myself. Violence, she queried, rubbing up her anger machine for another stroke. What kind of violence? I was firmly keeping a lid on it as I said. I have this image of hitting you in the face. I looked at her. Our eyes were locked, but I still had not lost control of my voice or my assertive techniques. You mean you are so pissed off at me that you have a picture of hitting me and still you're talking to me like you're all calm and collected? Yes, I said softly, a little proud of myself. Fuck you, Gina screamed at the top of her lungs. And I laughed. It came suddenly, straight from my belly like a sneeze you don't expect. I laughed. The truth will often make you cry, but it will also often make you laugh. It took a lot of mollifying to prove to Gina that I heard her and that she was right. She deserved a mother, not a therapist. She wanted an argument and she had gotten psychobabble. I couldn't help her because I was tapped out but she still needed help and support. So I tapped others beside myself who had the energy and the time for that support. After Gina and I had calmed down a bit, I told her what we needed were doulas, people who would help her when I couldn't. Doulas, as you probably know, are popular in many other countries and now in the U.S. too. They are support systems for new mothers and their young babies. I figured I needed help with my young teen. We would create Gina's own new doulas, people who could extend that maternal support Gina needed into a big strong net that could hold her up and give her some bounce and some place to rest and swing lightly when she needed it. I couldn't give her everything she needed all the time, but there were others who could help. I called four friends and told them what was up with me and Gina. I asked if they could be on hand for her when she needed mother love beyond what I could give her. All of them said yes. Gina knew them all very well, and they all not only waited for her to call, but would sometimes call in to offer help or to check on her. With my phone call to each of the doulas, we established the simplest parameters. Gina could go to them at any time, as long as she would let me know where she was so I wouldn't worry. Any doula could do anything with Gina that she and the doula agreed would be fun or useful. Go for a walk or out to dinner, sit and talk, go to the movies. Gina was to have absolute confidentiality. She would not be expected to tell me what had happened with her doula, and the doula was not expected to report to me in any way unless she and Gina agreed that it was necessary. And the last and most important perimeter was that both Gina and the doula had perfect freedom to talk about me however they liked. So if Gina said, My mother is a control freak and the doula had had that experience of me as a control freak, she should use perfect license to say, I know just what you mean. Last year we worked on a project together, and near the end she made me crazy with how perfect she had to make everything. In this way, Gina could truly share her complaints, learn that her mother is not perfect, and get insights in how others deal with tough relational situations that she was just now learning to manage. The system worked really well. One doula hired Gina for a short-term flower arranging job that meant a lot to Gina. Another offered to take her to a driving lesson. Another phoned her and chatted every once in a while. Still another asked her to tea. We are all really isolated in our modern cultures. Car- cars, cell phones, computers keep us each in our own little pods and make constant moving an essential part of our lives. So we are not in touch with others as we once more were. We were all alone in the tasks that most, most require community, raising children. To do these tasks in this kind of isolation can be crazy-making. It was never meant to be this way. Isn't it time we spread the work and the joy, among others? Assigning people to your children can be done with a formal setup, as what I created with the for Regina. But you may also find that simply arranging for helpmates of different sorts to enter the lives of your children as mentors, teachers, or guides can be just as good. When Max showed a real talent for physics, I arranged for him to spend time with a physics expert who lived nearby. They worked not on school problems, but on ways of expanding Max's knowledge of one of his favorite subjects. With this outsider's help, an interest became Max's passion. When I saw that Max lived, liked to work with his hands, I found him an after-school program run by a group of male carpenters and a craftswoman. He learned to build things and to be around men who did work with their hands that no adult in our family could do. He spent his afternoons with other kids and other adults doing new things. He even learned to rollerblade. He was in that program for many years and still visits with the leaders of that group from time to time when he comes home on holidays. Doulas and other support people can enlarge your child's experience of the world, and together you can offer your young person a fuller range of adult guidance, support, and solace than you could ever provide all on your own. But what about the moments when you are stranded with an angry teen and there is no way of stepping away and letting another step in? In our family, we use techniques to aid us in getting our message across without being destructive. I call it the game. The game. So there you are, the two of you, really furious with each other. Doors slamming, hard words like circling asteroids spinning through the air. You've nearly come to blows. Maybe you felt like breaking something, you retire to your separate corners afraid that the next time you might literally or figuratively come out swinging. This is the moment for the game. The game is a structured interaction that can help two or more people find out what is going on and resolve issues when things go wrong. With two people, it can take as little as 45 minutes. But those 45 minutes can move you from a black hole of anger and misunderstanding to compassion and peace for all concerned, including you. The process goes something like this. Sit comfortably with both feet on the floor facing each other. Person A makes a query. I'll show you those in a second. And person B then answers for five minutes. You can use a timer to keep track. While B is speaking, person A agrees to listen respectfully without interrupting. When the timer goes off, person B stops talking. Person A then says, thank you. No more, just thank you. Take a short break, then reverse the roles person B now asks person A a query and listens for five minutes. Do this until each partner has asked and answered three times. Alternate between the three following queries. The first one is, tell me something you think we agree on. The second one is, tell me something you like about me. And the third one is, tell me something you think I should know. After each query, it is important to say thank you to keep in the spirit of the game and remind each partner to remain in mutual respect of the process. Here are the rules: speak only from your own experience; don't comment on what has been said before; take a break, break of at least a few minutes in between each session. After the last session has ended, take a break for a few minutes, an hour, or even a whole day however long it seems to work best so the lesson of the words, emotions, and gestures expressed can really sink in. If you decide to take a lengthy break afterwards before speaking again, try to do something easy in order to stay with the thoughts and emotions you are having and absorb what you, each of you has said. You might go for a walk separately or one might fold laundry while the other goes out for a walk. During this period, do not discuss what is said in the session until you both have agreed the break is over. This is very important. As you reflect on what has been said, try to key into your love for your teen. Try to show the love, not the judgment, which comes from your intention to heal. Keep in mind that you are both making yourselves vulnerable to each other. Model the wisdom, compassion, and love you want your teen to attain. There may be tears, tears, Tears are good. There may still be angry words. These can be useful too. Try to listen for the undercurrent of your teen's longing and respond to the longing, not the anger. What do you hear? Does your teen feel lost? Offer reassurance. Does your teen feel isolated? See if they would like suggestions for paths into community. Are they feeling overwhelmed? Ask them if they want some guidance. But don't push. Don't tell them what to do, and don't feel rejected if it seems they are not interested in your offers. The body, mind, and soul are undergoing a powerful exercise of being present for difficult feelings. Just as soup tastes better the day after the making, human psychological and spiritual growth often progresses better with some time, reflection, and withdrawal. Take your time. Be sure to thank them for their willingness to participate in this exploration and then let go. Go about your day. Things usually get better on their own after the exercise, just from having taken the time to do it. And if they don't improve, try again in a few days. Ice cream often helps. Thank you for listening. If you have a struggling millennial, feel free to reach out. You can reach us at launch.5for5.org or call me, Marianne Majori, at 415 577 6627. That's 415-577-6627. We would love to hear from you. Take care until then.